passages passages this morning are in Romans 8 and Hebrews 11. Romans 8, 18 through 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And the second reading is in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Those, all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Team, there we are. It is good to be together this morning. You'll notice that the reading was not out of the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, If you've been with us here at Harvest for quite a while now, we've been working our way from cover to cover through the New Testament book of Revelation, uh, one of the most interesting uh, books in the Bible that anchors the New Testament. We are going to resume that study later because we're taking Revelation in three major sections. Last Sunday, we finished the second of those three sections. And so what's going to happen for the next few weeks leading up to Easter Sunday is that we're going to be in a whole separate series of sermons as a church. And then we will resume and finish Revelation in April and May right after Easter Sunday. Now, what we're going to do between now and then is talk about this season of Lent and this journey that we have been on as a church. Together, we are all participating in a devotional study titled The Bible Story in 40 Days. Many of you have committed uh, to uh, engage in that study with us. As Jordan mentioned earlier, if you need updated copies of it, they're out in the atrium. By the way, if you haven't started it because maybe you came to harvest after we began or just haven't gotten going, I'd encourage you still uh, to pick it up. The purpose of this whole study is to show us in a period of 40 days from uh, Ash Wednesday a couple weeks ago all the way leading up to Easter what the Bible story is all about. Now, that's an ambitious task, because if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of book in this book. Uh, This thing is thick, and there's a lot going on. The Bible is uh, a fairly extensive book. It is a somewhat complex book, but thankfully, it is also a book that has a rhyme and a reason to it. It's not unintelligible. It has a message. It has a flow. It has a purpose, and that's what this study is designed to help you see. And what we're going to do together for the next four Sundays leading up to Easter, starting this morning, is we're going to parallel the main themes of that study. You see, the only way that I know of to really capture what the Bible says from cover to cover in a short period of time is to do it the way the Bible does it. The Bible is organized thematically. 
there are several major themes that start at the very beginning of the Bible and they run clear through it till the end. And it's really by following those themes we can see how all the parts fit together. And so for our study throughout this series of Lent, we have focused on four of the Bible's core themes depicted by these four pictures that you've been seeing on our screens. If you've been with us here, they're on the left side of the slide there. Uh, First, the theme of the move from creation to new creation. And that's what we're actually going to talk about this morning. That is the narrative flow of the Bible. The other three themes, the theme of uh, relationship, of faith, and of the Messiah, we will pick up over the course of the next three Sundays. And when you see all three or four of these themes together, you understand the Bible's message. So here's the great thing. If you're engaged with our services over the next four weeks, you will come away understanding what the Bible is all about. How many places in life can you hear a promise like that made, all right? Whether I can keep the promise, you'll have to tell me when we're done, but that's what we're aspiring to, okay? Over the next four weeks, you're going to understand how the Bible fits together. And here's the point as we kick this thing off this morning. It's not just how the Bible fits together and what sort of the the narrative flow of the Bible is. For God, he's giving this book to us because he wants that to become the narrative flow of us, his people, That we understand what he said in the Bible and therefore his thoughts become our thoughts and the pattern of the flow of his word becomes the pattern of the flow of our lives. And that's going to lead us right into the great celebration of our Lord's death and resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, Our community life group discussions over these next few weeks I think are going to be very rich. If you're in one of our community life groups, I will encourage you to dive into these sermons. If you're doing the devotional study, it will really help these sermons come more to life, but I also hope and trust that by going over these on Sunday mornings, it will really help breathe life into your devotional readings as well. So once again, those are available out in the atrium and also for free download on our website. Now, we're in two passages of Scripture this morning, Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 11. Here's where we're going this morning with this theme of the move from creation to new creation and how that helps us as God's people develop an eternal perspective. That's God's goal, and that's really what we're talking about this morning. We have three simple points this morning. First, from the first passage, Romans chapter 8, what is the narrative flow of the Bible? What is an eternal perspective? We're going to answer that question, see see that from Romans chapter 8. Secondly... Uh, What does an eternal perspective look like in the life of a person if he or she has really kind of gotten that into his or her bloodstream? What is an eternal perspective? On the one hand, the second question is, what's it look like? How does it impact and shape a person's life? We're going to see that from Hebrews chapter 11. And then we're going to conclude this morning with some thoughts about how do I, as a modern-day Christian, develop one of these things called an eternal perspective And how does the flow of my life match the flow of Scripture? That's where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to Romans chapter 8. As we just heard from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. That's where we're going to begin this morning. What is the narrative flow of the Bible? And how does it help us understand as a people what the flow and the purpose of our own lives is supposed to be? The Apostle Paul begins the paragraph that we read earlier, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, with an interesting observation. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us one day. In other words, he begins by saying the pains and the challenges of this life are put into perspective by the narrative of the Bible. That's important enough, I think it's worth repeating. This is what the Bible's saying. The pains and the sufferings and the difficulties of this life 
are put into perspective by the narrative flow of the Bible. You see, the Apostle Paul says the Bible is telling us that history is going somewhere and that all of us who are a part of it are going there too. And when you understand that, that's not just some kind of philosophical mumbo-jumbo to know about life. He says when you understand that, it puts all of the pains and trials and sufferings and difficulties and frustrations of this life into a completely new perspective. In other words, it changes your mindset. He said the pains and sufferings of this life are nothing compared to what's coming. Well, that presupposes we know what's coming, right? And that's precisely the point. That's where he goes next. Interestingly, he shifts in verse 19, and immediately he says the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The fate of the physical world, he says, is inextricably bound up with the fate of mankind. The environment, the world in which we live, its fate and its future are tied to the human race's fate and future. That's how God designed it, because he made a place for people to live, and then he put people in the place. The two go hand in hand. And then for the next couple of verses, the Apostle Paul summarizes for us the narrative flow of the entire Bible. You see it everywhere in the Bible, but nowhere may be so short and sweet and to the point as in these next few verses, 20 to 22 of Romans 8. It all begins with creation. God, who ultimately makes the world, he makes it perfect. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. It's a good world. It's a world that is free of problems. It is a world that when God finished making it, he called it very good. In God's infinite wisdom, he says, it, this is the way it's meant to be. The world is good. The world works right. It's a perfect home for people. But of course, it didn't stay that way for very long. After creation, we have what is usually referred to as the fall, meaning the fall of mankind, the fall from grace. This is captured in Genesis chapter 3, only the third chapter into the Bible. God cursed the world, once perfect place though it was. It no longer is. It's broken. It was cursed by God who made it perfectly in the first place. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 describes this as subjecting the world to futility. There's this kind of senseless, never-ending suffering and, and, and trouble that exists in the world today. You can't ever get away from it, and it has no meaning or purpose. That's the idea of futility. The world, the earth has been subjected to futility, and so the lives of those who live in it, we suffer too because we live in a broken world. The futility he later describes in verse 21 in more uh, detailed terms, he says the futility he's talking about is a bondage to corruption or a bondage to decay. The world is in bondage. It is trapped in being broken and being corrupt. It can't be the perfect, beautiful world that God made it to be in the first place. And he says that it was subjected to this broken, decaying nature, not willingly. So he's sort of, the Bible's sort of personifying the environment at this point as if it has a mind or a will. It says it wasn't the, the earth's fault that it's broken. It wasn't the earth's choice. It was humanity's fault because it was humanity's choice. Our sin resulted in the curse upon us, and part of God's curse is to curse the world in which we live. And so it is a broken place. It is a place where there is suffering. Fortunately, the story does not stop there. It moves on to the phase of redemption. This is the third of the four steps of the biblical's narrative. Creation, then the fall, and then the promise of redemption. Verse 20 
He says the creation was subjected to futility, um, not willingly, but it was subjected to futility in hope. In hope. In other words, there is a a certain futility about the way the world works now. It's never going to be perfect. It's always going to be broken in a thousand different ways. And and, and it's not just going to get better necessarily on its own. And yet there is hope that it won't be this way forever. Even as God pronounced the curse in Genesis chapter 3, those of you following along in our Lent devotional study remember studying that chapter, He promised at the very same time to send a savior who would fix what mankind has broken. And if you want to understand at the sort of most basic level what's going on in the Bible, what is it all about? The entire rest of the Bible is the story about how God is fixing what mankind messed up when we sinned. The first three chapters are like backstory. They're a prologue to the Bible. God made this perfect world, and it tells us why it's broken. And the entire rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 4 clear to the end, 99% of it is about what God is doing to fix what we have broken. It is the story of redemption. And that will lead and ultimately culminate, lead to and culminate in the restoration of God's world or a renewed creation. He says in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The physical world, the Bible tells us, will be restored when the human race is restored. When God, uh, Jesus Christ, comes back and God establishes perfect righteousness on the earth, annihilates all sin, and restores things to the way they were meant to be. Righteous people living joyfully in his presence in a perfect world for all eternity. That's where this story ends. That's where this story culminates. And it's this move from creation to fall to redemption, to restoration or new creation that defines the plot line of the entire Bible. That's the superstructure. That's, that's well, the whole thing kind of flows along those rails. Now, there's a lot that goes on in the Bible. There's a lot of branches, as it were, that spin off of that tree, but it has one major trunk, and it is that narrative move, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. If you know that, you know what the Bible is about. That's the narrative structure that holds the entire flow of biblical thought together. That's the story the Bible is telling. That, according to God, is the meaning of human history. Life in a sin-cursed, broken world, our fault, God is fixing it, and we are headed to the place where it will be restored. So in this way, the creation and fall explain the mess that that we're in and, and sort of how we got there. That's the diagnosis. Here's the problem. Here's the nature of the problem. Redemption is all about the uh, prescription. This is how the problem is going to be fixed. It turns out we can't fix it. God says, I'm going to fix it so that all humanity has the opportunity to experience life the way I intended it to be. And lastly, the new creation is something of the prognosis. What's it going to look like when the treatment plan is done and the disease is cured? It's going to be good. And the end, friends, to that story, the good end is absolutely crucial. It's crucial to everything that's in the Bible, 
And it's essential to us living an effective Christian life to know that the end is good. It guides the way we think about life and it shapes the way we live our life. And that's what helps us develop an eternal perspective. That's what an eternal perspective is. What does it look like when a person's life has been shaped by such an eternal perspective? What difference does it make in their lives? We get a beautiful picture of that in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you'd turn over there with me. Hebrews is several short books to your right if you're in the book of Romans. And this uh, chapter of Scripture, these few verses that we uh, heard read earlier, give us a beautiful picture of what a life looks like when it is driven by and shaped by an eternal perspective. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, many of you know, God is looking back at many Old Testament people who trusted him fully, and he's saying, this is what I want. He's, he's showing us examples of real people to say, this is what a faithful life looks like. And as he's going from person to person to person and giving us examples, after example, kind of in the middle of it, he stops and he narrates a little bit more of what you're seeing. He says, I'm going to tell you what it is about these people that makes me so proud of them and makes me want all of you to be like them. And we find that description in verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. All these, he says, died in faith. They didn't receive the things that were promised, but they saw them and they greeted them or they welcomed them or they embraced them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's powerful language. Strangers and exiles. Foreigners would be the term. You're here on this planet on a temporary visa. It's not your home. They're not your people. It's not the language that you speak or the culture that you know or the food that you eat, but you're living there temporarily on assignment. Nevertheless, you're a foreigner, and you're not going to be there forever. That's the picture that the Bible paints for our entire lives as Christians as a journey through this, this life and this world. This place is not our home. The mindset when a person gets an eternal perspective looks a lot like the mindset of a refugee or a, 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 a foreigner, an alien, a stranger living in a foreign land. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. Consequently, they yearn for the real home. Verse 14, people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If I'm living in a foreign country on assignment for my you know, business or whatever, and I'm going to be there for a few years, well, I'm going to do some things to, to, to make a life. I'm, I'm going to find a place to live. I'm going to try to learn some of the language. I'm going, to, I'm going to open up a bank account. I'm going to do some things that I have to do in order to kind of live for the few years that I'm there. But I'm not going to put my roots down too deep because that place isn't my home, you see? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I've, I've got a place to live. I, I, I bought a place or I'm paying rent on a place. And, and, and I've learned to speak some of the language. But in everything that I do to get along in this society that I'm living in temporarily, it's always tainted and colored by this idea that, yeah, but someday I'm going back home. And I can't wait to get there because that's home. That's where I belong. That's what an eternal perspective does in the life of a person. You say, what's an eternal perspective looks like? It looks like longing for my real home, even as I do what I need to do to get by in my temporary home. They could have settled for the best life they could get, verse 15. 
If they hadn't been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. God says, you know what makes me proud of these people? It's that they could have said, you know what? If I put all my energy into this life, I can have a pretty good life. And so that's what I'm going to do. They could have said that, but they chose not to. They said, I'm not going to go and just make the best of this life that I can. I am putting my heart on the real home that God promises to give me one day. It's summarized beautifully in verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country. It's better than the current place. They desire a heavenly country. And that is the reason why God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city, a real home. If you're a Christian this morning, as many of us are, you want God to be happy about you? You want God to be proud, as it were, to associate you with himself and himself with you? You want God to say, yeah, that's the kind of person I'm looking for. You say, yes, that'd be great. How do I do it? The Bible just pointed it out to us, black and white, straightforward. Learn to yearn for your real home as opposed to the one you're in temporarily. And God says, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. Developing an eternal perspective looks a lot like living as an alien and a stranger and yearning for our real home. And what I want to do with the time we have left is talk about how then do you do this? Because the Bible also does not leave us um, confused there as well. How do you develop an eternal perspective? We know what it is. We've gotten a hint of what it looks like. How do we do it? We start by noticing, first and foremost, that all throughout Scripture, love is actually the key. Love is the key. Uh, you don't develop an eternal perspective by saying, I'm going after it. Like, I've got a new gym routine, and I'm determined to lose 10 pounds, and so I'm getting on this, right? And so I get my lists, and I start working my lists, and I get my discipline going, and I say, I'm going to stop eating so much sweets, and I'm going to start going to the gym whether I feel like it or not, or whatever, and I just discipline myself to improve my life. Well, you can do that pretty effectively when your goal is to lose 10 pounds or get in shape, but spirituality, Christian living, doesn't work so much that way. We can't will ourselves through sheer determination or a sense of obligation into being more spiritual people. I cannot will myself into having a more eternal perspective. So to long for our real home, we're going to have to take a different path. And fortunately, we're given a lot of guidance on this. Uh, 200 years ago, there was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor by the name of Thomas Chalmers. No relation to Tim, so far as I know, who was playing guitar over here a few minutes ago. But I don't know, Tim, maybe it's a long-lost relative. I'm not sure. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon that has an absolutely epic title. The title of his sermon was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That is genius. <laughs> um, 
his sermon is still on the internet. There's transcripts of it. You can look it up and you can read it. Um, it is in an older style of English because this was like the early 1800s, kind of the old King's English kind of stuff. And a lot of modern Americans find that really difficult to read. I got great news for you this morning, though. You don't even need to bother looking it up. You don't have to read it. Because the title of the sermon is so freakishly good, you don't even actually need to listen to it to be impacted by it. It's awesome. Here's what Chalmers was getting at. Reflecting on 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Scottish Presbyterian pastor preached a whole sermon on that that is genius when it comes to human nature and how to develop an eternal perspective. He notes that I can either love the things of God or I can love the things of the world. The Bible gives me an either-or choice. Both doesn't work. But neither doesn't work either because I will love something because that's how the human heart works. God designed us to yearn for, to be excited about, to love certain people and certain things. We can't not love something. Everyone loves something even if it's only themselves. So he says, I can choose to love God and the things of God or the world and the things of the world. So I can't fall out of love with this life by focusing on how bad it is or repeating to myself how many uh, times the, the world's promises are empty. I can't fall out of love with the world by just disciplining myself to say, I shouldn't love that stuff. I know I'm, I'm, I'm dogged by pornography, but it doesn't satisfy and it's empty, so I just need to stop it. I, I, I know that, that all of my selfishness hasn't really made me happy, so I should just quit being selfish. I know I should be less materialistic because materialism is never going to ultimately satisfy, so I'm just going to will myself to quit being materialistic. I can't just will myself to fall out of love with the things of the world. It doesn't work. Instead, he says, I fall out of love with the lesser things of this life by falling into love with the greater things of Christ. Do you see the difference? And because the greater things of Christ are truly greater, once I fall in love with them, that love of greater things will drive out my love of lesser things. That's the expulsive force, <laughs> the expulsive power. My love of the greater things of God will expel my love of the lesser things of this world. You want to fall out of love with this world? You fall more into love with the next. That's what he's saying. That's how it works. C.S. Lewis who many of you are more familiar with, made the, essentially the same point almost 150 years later in what is probably my favorite work by him, of many that I like, um, a, a sermon or a speech he gave titled The Weight of Glory. Let me read you one small part of a paragraph at the beginning of this. This is Lewis speaking in England in the 1940s or so. He says, we are told throughout the Bible um, to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And yet every description, nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. He's talking about rewards. Lewis goes on and says, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
Let me pause here. See what Lewis is saying? Our problem isn't that we love material things too much, or we love sexual immorality too much, or we love alcohol too much, or we love ourselves too much. Our problem is not that we love too much. Our problem is that we love too little. We settle for such petty, lesser loves when God is offering us the greater things of Christ. We are half-hearted creatures, Lewis says. We fool around with things like drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is what's being offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What a devastating critique of human nature, and I believe absolutely accurate and biblical. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is saying, the biggest problem that we have as Christians is that we get all the fun and pleasure that we can out of this life, and then we settle for it. A good retirement plan, a comfortable house, a nice family vacation, and we actually think that's what life is about. We haven't quite yet grasped that other, better country. We're not quite yearning for it as much as it was being described in Hebrews 11. So if these guys are right, and I think they are, then the answer, the key to developing an eternal perspective is to anticipate, revel in, and yearn for our eternal home more than the temporary home of this life. How do you do that? In a modern American culture where, relative to most other cultures throughout history, we are given so much stuff, we have so much ease and so much uh, comfort, it is almost unparalleled in the history of human existence. How do you develop a longing for a greater reality that is to come and fall out of love with the lesser petty things when they seem so great to us? With the time we have left, I want to suggest four things that will help us, certainly not the only four, but four things that will help us learn to yearn for our eternal home as Christians in a way that it can actually begin to transform your thinking and reshape your living, because that's what God is after. First, I want to suggest that we actually do know far more about the new heavens and the new earth, or what we sometimes call heaven, than we often think we do. We do know more about heaven than we think we do. You see, I've been around in professional pastoral ministry long enough and, and have talked about these topics enough with enough Christians to know that by this point, many of you right now are probably thinking this as well, that, okay, in theory, all of that sounds great, but the truth is, I don't know how to fixate my heart or my mind on heaven because we have no idea what it's going to be like, right? We just have no clue. I mean, it's presumably it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. God said so, and God's God, so I trust him. But I have no concept at all what heaven is going to be like. The problem there is that I can't really get excited about something I don't understand. And I think that's not just me. <laughs> I think that's human nature. It's really difficult to get all excited about something you can't envision or imagine or comprehend. And so if I remain convinced that I know nothing about the eternal life that is to come, then I am guaranteeing that I will only be in love with this life because it's all I know. But, but fortunately, I don't think that statement is true. I think we actually do know far more about heaven than we think. 
we do have some inklings of what it will be like because it turns out heaven is actually, in the biblical language, a new heavens and a new earth. It was very common back in the first century when the New Testament was written for people to talk about uh, the world in terms of the heavens and the earth. The heavens meaning that's, that's the skies. You look up at night, you know, from a human perspective. You see stars and, and sun out there. I mean, they didn't think about like deep space and outer space and, and you know, atmosphere. They just, like, you look up, you see the stars, and, and, and you, you look up at the daytime, you see clouds and birds. That's the heavens, <laughs> the stuff that's up in the sky. And then, of course, there's the earth. Um, there's the land and plants and people and animals that walk around on the earth. So here's the old heavens and the earth. It's their way of kind of saying what we would say today, the universe, the, the world, the physical environment. It turns out the Bible teaches us that heaven is really going to be a new heavens and earth, a new environment, a new, renewed creation. Remember, what is our plot line of scripture? Four points, creation, fall, redemption, New creation. Say it with me. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's where it's all going. You've got it. You know the Bible story. Good for you. See how easy that was? Now think about the implications of that. New creation isn't a brand new universe, the likes of which you've never imagined. Those words are nowhere in the Bible. It is a renewed version of the broken, messed up world you know intimately. So it will be radically different in many ways, and all of them will be good, but it is, it is fundamentally the same universe. The Bible tells us that we will not spend eternity far off in some ethereal realm, floating in clouds, wearing white bedsheets, and playing harps. That's the far side, not the scriptures. <laughs> it makes for some pretty funny comic strips. I'll give, I'll give Gary Larson that, but it's not in the Bible. It's God's original creation restored to its original perfection. For Christians, our eternal home will be everything we see and experience now, yet with all of the goodness and pleasures magnified many times over and all of the bad, crummy aspects completely wiped out. How's that to get you a little excited? One more quote from Lewis. He says something very remarkable about our love of the things in this world. He says, the faint, far-off results of the energies that God's creative rapture implanted in matter. I'm sorry, he has a lot of words. I'll translate this in a second. When he made the worlds, that's what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What Lewis is saying is this. The world is broken. And yet we, we, we get so much pleasure out of certain things in this life, don't we? The eating of a good meal, the intimacy of a deep relationship, the joy of being in a beautiful place, the list goes on and on and on. And he says, all of that is just the most filtered, filtered through the corruption. It's like we're seeing God's glory through a scummy, grotesque, dirty window where barely any light penetrates. And yet the little bit of pleasure that does penetrate through the scum of our sin is so exciting, we can't imagine living without the pleasures of this life. Now look what he says. What then would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? You see, we have pleasures in this life that are so powerful, they become addictions. We can't even manage our craving for these pleasures. And he says, here's the crazy thing. That pleasure is nothing compared to what it is like to drink at the fountainhead of pleasure 
In the Bible, in the Bible, God says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, I am the very source of joy and pleasure. You're only experiencing the tepid, dirty, stagnant swamp water in the lowlands, and you can't get enough of it. Wait till you get up on the mountain and you drink from the crystal clear cold spring. So imagine your favorite things about this world. What would it be? For some of you, maybe like me, you're up in the mountains somewhere by a lake, fly rod in hand, not a soul to be seen, nature all around you, and you just go, ah, this is as close as I've ever been to heaven. Or maybe you've got a different scene. We all have scenes. They're different from one another, but we can all relate to the experience. Maybe for you, it's that snuggled up on the couch in the snow or the driving rain as you're home alone with a hot cup of coffee or tea and your favorite book and a few hours of just blissful peace to enjoy a place of safety. Maybe it's the whole family with all the grandkids around the dining table at the holidays and and your heart is just fairly bursting with joy. I woke up Friday morning and I felt like it was Christmas because my daughter's back from college for spring break. We've been anticipating her coming back. I woke up at six o'clock in the morning after five and a half hours of sleep because I went to bed too late. I tried to roll over and go back to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep. I felt like I was going to open presents that day. My kid's coming home, right? You, these things, you get so excited, you can hardly contain yourself. Okay, whatever that is for you. Imagine that joy. Now imagine that joy and satisfaction amplified a hundred times with every ounce of the sin, pain, and decay removed. Because let's face it, the best pleasures of this world have problems. There are mosquitoes up in the mountains. There's nothing worse than to join that perfect scene and then, ah, come on, you know? Or you're sitting there and you're cuddled up on the Saturday morning and it's wonderful bliss for 10 minutes until the kids get in a fight in the other room and the whole thing just kind of goes to pot, right? It's wonderful to sit on the beach in the tropics and just soak in the beautiful turquoise seas until the resort hands you the bill. Ouch! Seriously? There's always something in this life that takes the joy away. What if it's all gone? No, friends, we do have an idea of what heaven will be like. Enough so that the imagination can and should start to envision what it might be like because soon the heart will follow. By the way, your imagination is one of the most beautiful gifts God has ever given you. Please use it. Use it. Reason and rationality is a wonderful gift too. Our emotions are wonderful gifts too. Friends, your imagination is a God-given and a gift that God intends you to use. Fill your heart and mind with what heaven will be like. There's so many aids here. I don't have time to list them all, but if you want a little bit of a jump start, uh, a lot of Randy Alcorn's writings. Uh, some of you are familiar with them. He wrote several novels, uh, my favorite of which is called Safely Home. It'd be a great book to read. Uh, several other novels. Here's one book I wanted to call your attention to uh, in particular. Getting a little bit behind my own slides here. It's called The Promise of Heaven. It's been out for a while. Um, basically, this is a book that combines some of Randy's writings about heaven Uh, I talked with him when he was putting this together. I've I've known him. He actually partnered with another guy that I know who's a professional photographer named John McMurray. John takes stunning, jaw-dropping pictures of some of the most incredible nature scenes you'll ever find in your life. 
So if you're like me, and particularly if you love the outdoors and you love nature, you get a copy of this book and, and you get these pictures that just take your breath away and then there are scripture verses and, and comments on the nature of a new and renewed earth. It can help engage the imagination to say, what is heaven going to be like? The Promise of Heaven by Randy Alcorn and John McMurray. Many, many other good books, but I need to move on. Coming from this, a couple of more points. Since we do know more about what heaven's like than we think, let me make a couple other points that I, I know are, are daily kind of stuff that, that Christians deal with. First of all, or I guess secondly, in my four points. First, we do know more about what heaven's like than we think. Secondly, heaven is always a net gain. It is never a net loss. Now, I think this is a really important point to make, and at first you may be saying that sounds like a dumb thing to say. I mean, isn't that obvious? I mean, by definition, heaven's a net gain. Why would you even need to say that? I say that because one interesting aspect of being a pastor is that you discover how many Christians are afraid to go to heaven. Seriously, Christians who believe in heaven, believe in the Bible, believe in God, believe God's going to take them there, but they're afraid to go to heaven because they think something about going to heaven will be a net loss. They're going to lose something in this earth that they love deeply, and they can't imagine living without it, and going to heaven means losing whatever that thing is. Kind of humorously, I had a college friend who was a Christian who was dating a girl but not married, and he actually said at one point to me in a conversation, you know, I'm I, I'm, I know that when Jesus comes back, it'll be great, but you know, it wouldn't hurt my feelings at all if he didn't come back until I got married first. He just wanted to experience firsthand all of the joys and the intimacies of marriage, physical, relational, and in every other way. And he's like, you know, I'm sure heaven will be great, but if he comes like today, I'm not married yet, and I'm going to miss out on that. And we kind of laughed about it, but he was also partly serious. Can you relate? I think most of us could, if we're honest. More seriously, recently I talked to a man who was close to, uh, close to death on his um, last legs. And he told me, too, after we talked about his assurance that he could know based on his embrace of the gospel of Jesus that he was going to heaven after he died. There was still one aspect, at least, of going to heaven that troubled him. And he says, you know, I've, I've heard that, that there's no marriage in heaven. And I've loved being married to my wife. I just can't imagine going to a place where I'm not going to be married to my wife. You see, behind these thoughts is the belief that going to heaven is actually a net loss, not a net gain. But everything we've already seen this morning tells us that that's not the case. There's no marriage in heaven? Really? That's not actually what the Bible says. It doesn't say that anywhere. You say, well, wait a minute now. Didn't Jesus say that you know, men and women aren't going to be married to each other in heaven the way that we're married to each other now? Yes, he did say that very clearly. He did not say there's no marriage in heaven. What he said is there is one ultimate marriage in heaven, the marriage of the lamb and the, his bride, the church, the marriage of Jesus Christ with his people. And friends, in every wedding I've ever done, we read from Ephesians chapter 5, and it talks about how marriage, human marriage, is just a signpost. It's just a pointer to point us to the greater relationship between God and his people. And so every, let's just follow the, the flow of thought we've had this morning. Every joy and pleasure you get in even the best marriage is tepid, dirty, stagnant swamp water. And if it's all you've ever drunk, it's pretty good. But what will it be like to be up on the mountain drinking from the crystal clear cold spring? Or as my wife Amy put it, I thought really well, this is just the smell. And it smells great. What will it be like to finally sit down to the banquet? 
You see, when I believe that I'm not going to be, say, married to somebody here and that that's going to be a net loss, I don't understand what I'm getting into. I'm getting into something of which all of this joy that I have is just pointing me toward the even greater joy that's coming. There will not be a net loss. It is always net gain. If you believe it's a net loss, you will never long for your eternal home. But the fact that the idea that heaven is a net loss is a lie from the pit of hell does not come from the Bible. That leads me to the third point directly, speaking of the joys of this world. The pleasures of this world are not meant to be dead-end cul-de-sacs, but express freeways that lead us straight into the throne room of God Almighty. The joys of this life are not meant to be cul-de-sacs. They're not, God doesn't give us good gifts just so we can enjoy those good gifts and say, thank you, God, for this good gift. I'm enjoying this now. Period. Although human nature, kind of that's where we naturally stop. But when we stop there, we've missed half the story. By the way, there's nothing wrong with what I've said so far. God gives me a good gift, whatever it is, a steady job, good health, a trip to the Caribbean, a happy marriage, a wonderful relationship with my kids. It doesn't matter what it is. God gives me a good gift. I should say, God, thank you for this gift, and I should enjoy it. The problem is not in the words. The problem is in the punctuation. I stuck a period at the end of that sentence. The Bible puts a comma. And then it gets to the good part. The good gifts of this life are meant to be signposts that point us to the greater gift of eternity with him. Meaning, when I am experiencing joy and pleasure in this life, the love of things of this world, it can and should be a signpost, a um, guide that leads my heart to point toward heaven. How much greater is this going to be when God remakes the world. The message from the Bible is not reject the pleasures of this life and stop enjoying it and just think about heaven. That's not the Bible. The message of Scripture is embrace the pleasures of this life God gives you, just not as ends in themselves. Recognize them for what they are. They're just the smell, the banquets in the other room. They're just the signpost. The fulfillment is at the top of the mountain. Come to see how each and every pleasurable thing in this life points you to the ultimate expression and fulfillment of that very pleasure in the person of God himself. This means we have to learn to think a little bit differently about human pleasures. You start to ask really weird and bizarre questions when the gospel gets a hold of your life. Like, I love this thing about life right now. How does that help me think about what God is going to do later? People are like, what? Dude, just enjoy Thanksgiving around the table. The family's wonderful. Just enjoy it. You never just enjoy anything when you're a Christian with an eternal perspective. You're always enjoying everything with a comma, not a period. You're always saying, and what does this tell me about who God is and what he has in store? If this is the tepid, stagnant swamp water, what is the crystal clear glory going to taste like? And then let that experience of joy and goodness rivet your heart toward your eternal home. That's Hebrews 11. And lastly, friends, I need to close with this. We do know more about heaven than we think. Heaven is always a net gain, never a net loss. The joys of life point us to heaven. And the greatest, fourth thing, finally, the greatest and most beautiful thing in the universe is God himself. Who he is, what he is, his character, his nature, his holiness, his love, his mercy, it's beautiful. And the beauty of God 
is seen everywhere. It's seen in creation. It's seen in good, healthy human relationships because all of these things reflect God and who he is. But the beauty of God is nowhere seen more clearly. It is nowhere displayed more brilliantly than in the gospel. That an infinite, holy, almighty God would pack his infinite frame into a tiny, finite, vulnerable human life, which he did in the incarnation when God became man and Jesus Christ was born. And then to suffer torture and death in our place so that he would pay the penalty of corruption for our sin that we wouldn't have to? And then just as you're really trying to get your head around all of that, which you really can't do, it's just mind-blowing, it gets even better, or worse, depending on how you look at it. After that, he rises victoriously from the dead in the Easter miracle to an eternal life, not only for himself, but for you and for me. That God died for us, the infinitely and perfectly holy and just God died for us while we were still sinners and deserved nothing of it. There's nothing more beautiful. The love God has for us is the kind of love you can't live without, and yet you never dare dream could actually be real, but it is. And it's shown in the events of the Easter weekend. God himself is the most beautiful thing in the universe. Friends, I'll end with this. What have we said? There's a narrative flow to the Bible. Creation, say it with me. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's what human history is all about. But you know what? That's not just the message of human history. That's the message God wants it to be of your life and my life. That I'm moving from someone, yes, who is created. Yes, I have fallen in my sin. Yes, God is in the process of redeeming my life now. And yes, he will give me that eternal home. And everything in my life is oriented there. Friends, when you get your heart around that and develop that kind of eternal perspective, you fall out of love with this world, you start thinking really weird, you start loving Jesus more than stuff, and pretty soon kingdom work starts to happen. God, may we be a church who learns to love its eternal home. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, thank you for the privilege of being your people and studying your word. Thank you for the promise you have held out for us greater in some ways than we can imagine. And yet we can imagine it in other ways because in your goodness you have given us so many good pleasures even here and now in life in this sin-cursed and broken world. Oh, but God, as we know by experience, none of them ultimately satisfy. Only you do. And so Jesus, I want to pray for the members of this church right now. I want to pray that you would uh, make us a family that learns to love what you are doing in and through this church, in one another's lives and in this community more than we love our own me time and our own stuff. God, I need that transformation. Would you transform me and the other members of our church that we might be a people of genuine, heartfelt extension of ourselves, self-giving and love, not because we're trying to make any kind of a point, it's simply because we don't love this world. We love you. And Jesus, for all those who are in this room, who do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray that you would encourage them 
that you would lead them to think deeply about their own lives and what they're hoping for, that you would hold the promise of the gospel out to every man and woman in this room so that we see you clearly, the truth and the beauty of who you are, and that you would draw men and women to yourself. I pray that men and women this morning would want to enter into a relationship with you whereby whereby we turn our back on our old life, submit to you as our king, and embrace the salvation that only you can give because you offer that freely to every man and woman because of your work. And I pray, Jesus, that you would transform hearts in and through this church for our good and for your glory. And it's these things we ask in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand?